The sermon today comes from Isaiah chapter two, verses one through five. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes of the peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. One day, rummaging through an old, dusty attic in a small Austrian town, a collector came across a faded manuscript that contained many pages of music. So he took this faded manuscript to a dealer, and the dealer called one of his friends in, and this friend got very excited but also puzzled at the same time. The handwriting on this manuscript was, seemed to be the handwriting of Mozart, but the music was very unknown. They didn't see it being Mozart's music or it didn't come from any of his, his famous uh, scripts. So they made more phone calls and they brought in more friends and more people of knowledge to look at this and they finally came to the conclusion that this was indeed a faded manuscript of Mozart. But at the same time, it was frustrating because there were gaps in the music. And so right when it would get to a time of climax in the music, there would be a huge gap and then it'd pick up again. And as they looked at it, they came to the conclusion it was Mozart's, but it was just incomplete. These beautiful pieces of music and then long gaps. And so it was this faded manuscript that had beauty to it, but also an incredible amount of frustration because it wasn't complete. And they longed to see the beautiful, completed manuscript. As we look at our world, that's a picture of what we see. There are stunningly beautiful parts of our world. There are parts of our world from things you see in creation, from, from people, things that people accomplish, just the beauty of a human being. There are parts that are beautiful, but there's also a lot of gaps, and we experience that every day. There are gaps in the beauty in our world that contain horrific brokenness, horrific ugliness. In fact, some of your lives give evidence of those gaps. And yet, when you look at the world, there's evidence that there was once something beautiful and complete. But we can't grab it. We can't see it. We can't seem to touch it. Leaves our hearts longing. Longing for 
the beautiful, complete world that we can't see before us right now. In chapter two of Isaiah, we see this stunningly beautiful vision of the world we long for. But then Isaiah also gives us an honest picture of the world that is, that is not so beautiful. And then he gives us in this chapter the way from the world that is broken, horrifically ugly in parts to the world that we long for, the world to come. He begins in what was read. We are gonna look through the entire chapter, but what was read is this vision of the world to come, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of a world unified. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. The mountains were widely regarded as the homes of the gods. In fact, the people in Isaiah's day would build a shrine or they would build a place of worship on top of a hill or on top of a mountain because they believed that was the closest they could get to heaven. What we see here in the world to come is that God triumphs over all the mountains, over all the gods, the idols, the agendas, of our world, God triumphs, that his mountain will be the highest above all mountains, and that the nations will flow to it. Verse three describes the nations, all kinds of peoples, gladly flowing to God, wanting to learn from him, wanting to worship him, finding great delight in that. It's a beautiful vision of unity, but it's so far from what we experience today, isn't it? So far from what we experience. How does this beautiful unity in a severely divisive and fractured world come about? I want you to notice the illogical imagery at the end of verse two. It says the nations flow to it. I mean, the nations flow up to the mountain of God. It's the imagery of a stream flowing uphill to the top of a mountain. Doesn't make any sense. And yet that's intentional because this is a supernatural work. This isn't the work of mankind. It's not human strategy that brings unity to our world. It's not a group of people sitting around figuring out what do we need to do to bring peace and unity to this world. No, it's a supernatural work. And this vision of unity in the world to come becomes a reality when all of these nations, all of these peoples, a very diverse people, find their greatest delight in a common devotion. To God. A.W. Tozer, he captures this when he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, 
but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Can you imagine a world like this? Can you imagine a world without competing agendas? A world without competing political agendas? A world without competing social agendas? A world without the hatred and the division that comes about because of these agendas? The honest answer is no. It's hard to imagine, especially with what we've been through in the past several years and what continues today. And yet the world to come will be a world unified around God, around his presence. It's a world of breathtaking unity, but it's also a world of breathtaking peace. Verse four, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's weapons of war transformed into instruments of cultivation. The imagery of agriculture of plowshares and pruning hooks is symbolic of the return to the Garden of Eden when people were, Adam and Eve were right with one another and right with God, peace with God, peace with one another. That's what the world to come will be. In Isaiah's vision here, there's another almost identical vision. It's in the, it's in the book of Micah, another prophet. And what's beautiful is that Micah lays out almost this identical vision, but at the end of his vision, there's an addition that's beautiful. So in Micah, after it says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. We read in verse four of chapter four in Micah, but listen to this. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, agricultural, Garden of Eden symbolism. And no one shall make them afraid. The world to come is a world without fear. It's a world without anxiety. Can you imagine such a world? Can you imagine your life? without fear or anxiety? I mean, to varying degrees, every one of us is crippled by fear and anxiety. And yet, in the world to come, there will be no such thing as fear and anxiety. Nothing but perfect peace, perfect unity, perfect peace. That's the world we long for. That's the world to come. But let's enter into a dose of reality. That's not the world it is. 
right? That's not the world that you and I experience every day. We experience a world that's disunified. We experience a world full of fear and anxiety. What does our present world look like? End of verse four, neither shall they learn war anymore. We are a world at war on every conceivable level, nation against nation. We see that with Russia and Ukraine right now. Race against race. Family against extended family. Sibling against sibling. Child against parent. Spouse against spouse. We live in a contentious world, and if we're honest, we live in contentious relationships. What's the source of it? When you think about the contention in your life, in your relationships, what's the source of that? Isaiah, Isaiah gives us the answer in verses six to nine of chapter two. He says, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made, so man is humbled, and each one is brought low. It's pride. Now, this is speaking of human pride amongst God's people. This is pride in the church, but Isaiah is going to go on in verses 12 to 17 and describe pride in the world. And pride is pride. Whether it shows up in the church, whether it shows up in the world, human pride is the greatest impediment to the world as it should be. There's this striking contrast between the world to come that Isaiah describes in verses two to four and the world that is that he describes in verses six to nine that I just read. Look at this contrast, verse two. The world is drawn to God. Verse six, God's people choose to conform to the world. Verse three, the world seeks spiritual wealth in the world to come. Verse seven, God's people seek material wealth. Verse four, after coming to God, the world is full of peace. Verse seven, God's people are stocked up with military equipment. Equipment for war, for contention. Verse three, the world seeks to know the true God. Verse eight, God's people are busy making and inventing their own gods. In verses six to eight, the word full or filled appears four times. Full of worldly wisdom, filled with money, filled with power, filled with idols. Pride is being filled with everything but the Holy Spirit. That's what pride is. It's being full of yourself. Right? We use that. That person's full of themselves, right? Well, we all are, to some degree, full of ourselves. That is what pride is, being filled with everything but the Holy Spirit. 
Pride is independence. It's self-sufficiency. It is the cause of every contention in your life. It's the cause of every relationship that you have that's contentious. Pride is the cause of it. A recent interview with actress Maria Fabriella DeFaria, it was in the global Uh, in the Global Heroes from the Wall Street Journal, she was asked a very interesting question. Here was the question. What is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? It's a good question. What's the one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? Here was her answer. Look for your own truth. Live your own truth instead of repeating anyone else's. She went on to explain, what's crucial to me is to make my audience question old beliefs. And then she goes on to counsel her followers in a daily practice of asking this, what do I need today? Because quote, the only person who will know what works for you is you. Now, that sounds liberating. In fact, that that is the cultural slogan of our day, is to live your truth. To see your problem and to find a truth that will meet your need and to go live it. That's the cultural slogan of our day. It seems liberating. It seems freeing. But what I want you to see is that it's enslaving and it's even dehumanizing. Look at verses 8 and 9. Isaiah describes here powerfully what idolatry is, which when we talk about idolatry, That is live your truth, right? So we hear that kind of quote, and you may think, wow, that's just the world out there. No, that's in the church as well, because that's what idolatry is. It's it's live your own truth. It's it's make your own truth that's going to satisfy you. Make your own God, create your own God. Verses 8 to 9, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Here's the folly of idolatry. Number one, you decide what you need. Number two, you create a God or make a God that's going to satisfy that need. And then number three, you bow down to or you serve that God. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Because Isaiah says that this work of idolatry eventually brings mankind low. In other words, it's dehumanizing. It makes you less human. Let me give you a couple examples. You identify that you need affirmation. You need to to feel like you are worth something. And so you decide you're going to get that, meet, that need met through another person, another person affirming you. And so you assign God-like status to this other person to meet that need. Typically, one of two things happens. Either that person initially meets the need, 
and it's like a sugar hit, and then it crashes and you're left in the same place, needing more affirmation. Most typically what happens is the person doesn't meet your need. And so you move on to another person that's gonna meet that need. And then when they fail, you move on. And so you turn through people because what you're doing is you're treating people like objects to meet your need. And so as you treat a person like an object, you dehumanize them. You, you make them less human. And as you do that, you yourself become less human. Or let me give you another example. You have a need for pleasure or a need for comfort. And so you decide to meet that need, you are gonna go to another person for that comfort. And that person fails to give you the comfort you need, so then you move on to someone else, and that person fails. Again, you churn through people who fail to meet your need because you're treating them like an object. And as you objectify them, you dehumanize them, and you yourself become less human. That's how idolatry works. Because the definition of an idol is there's nothing behind the surface that can actually meet the need that you're looking for. There's no spiritual power in whatever you have assigned God-like status to meet your need. Psalm 115.8 says it well, those who make idols become like them. Right, so an idol has no power. An idol ultimately is, is an object that has no life in it. And when you make one, you become like them. You become an object. You become less human. Alec Motyer says it well. When human beings depart from the Lord, no matter what they depart to, they progressively lose their true humanity. Their dignity, the image of God, is humiliated. Only in the Lord does humankind remain human. So we've looked at the world we long for, that breathtaking vision, a world of unity, a world of peace that is so foreign to us today. We've looked at the world that is, a world full of pride and independence, Question is, how do we get from the world that is to the world to come? How do we get from the world that is to the world we long for? There's a phrase that repeats over and over in Isaiah chapter two. Let me give you a couple instances of it. Verse two, in the latter days. Verse 11, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day. Verse 17, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 20, in that day. You say, what is that day? What's the day that Isaiah is talking about? Well, the phrase day of the Lord appears throughout the scriptures, certainly in the Old Testament. The day that Isaiah is referring to is the day of the Lord. It is the day that God steps foot into his creation. It's the day that God's presence appears in his world. And it is a purifying presence. When God steps into his world, it transforms his world. It 
removes what doesn't belong, which is sin. It preserves what does belong, which is righteousness. It's a purifying presence. You say, well, what day is Isaiah talking about? there's, There's two days of the Lord that Isaiah is referring to here. One day of the Lord has already happened 700 years after Isaiah wrote his prophecy, about 2,000 years ago when God stepped foot into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a second day of the Lord that is yet to come. That's the day when God will step foot back into his world again in the person of Jesus Christ. And both of these days that Isaiah is speaking of here, both of these days have a purifying characteristic to them, but in different ways. In Jesus' first coming, he purified the world by removing the power of sin for those who would turn to him. He didn't remove the presence of sin. That's pretty clear because we sit in the midst of brokenness and sin today, but he removed the power of sin for those that turn to him. In his second coming, when Jesus comes back again, he will remove the presence of sin once and for all. After Jesus' first coming, into verse two says the nations flowed to God or the nations will flow to God. That happened at Pentecost. In Acts chapter two, the nations, all kinds of peoples turned to Christ. Flowing to Christ, that still is happening today. And yet, in his second coming, what we read in Isaiah chapter 2 is that the nations that have not, or the peoples that haven't flowed to Christ, will meet God with terror. The phrase terror of the Lord appears three times in this chapter verse 10, verse 19, verse 21. Listen to verse 19. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord. This is speaking of Jesus' second coming, the second day of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Now, now wait a minute. You've got two responses to God's presence in this passage. End of verse two, the nations are flowing to God. There's joy in response to God's presence. And yet here we see just the opposite. There's terror in response to God's presence. Now, for those of you that are investigating Christianity, for those of you that that are skeptical about the claims of the Bible, the claims of who Christ is, This terror of the Lord that speaks of God's judgment may be one of the things that actually has pushed you away from embracing the claims of the Bible. You may say, a God of love, yes. But God of judgment, no way. There's no way that I can come on board with a God of terror or a God of judgment. But what I want you to see 
is that you, if you haven't thought through this, but deep down, you long or you believe that this world needs judgment. And all it takes is for someone that you love dearly to be assaulted or to be abused, for you to very quickly say, there needs to be judgment. And not only do you believe there needs to be justice and judgment on that horrific sin, but you also believe there needs to be someone to administer the justice. Whether it be a hitman that takes care of business, or whether it needs to be a judge that renders justice and executes the judgment. The problem is in a live your truth culture, everyone's standard of judgment is different. And the administration of justice is imperfect. The reality is everyone wants justice. You want justice, but you want it on your own terms. And typically your terms are easier on you and harsher on others. Right? That's how justice works. It's easier on you, but it's harsher on others. So my question to you would be this. If you do believe this world needs judgment, and you believe there needs to be someone to administer it, then why do you struggle to believe in a God of judgment? Who will perfectly administer it when he returns on the second day of the Lord? The answer is, why you struggle, why we all struggle, maybe to some degree, the answer is, and we don't like to hear this, but it's pride. That's why. Ray Ortland addresses this. Listen to what he says. The worst thing that can happen is not the loss of retirement investments, the loss of health or the loss of face. The worst thing that can happen to us is the loss of delight in the glory or presence of God alone. And the best thing that can happen to us is to be awakened to his glory or presence as our joy, listen, even if we must be humbled to experience that awakening. Are you being humbled? Have you been humbled? It's not to crush you. God's not humbling you to crush you. He's humbling you to awaken you to the only real source of joy and happiness in this world, and that is his glorious presence. If you are being humbled, it's so that God can awaken you. Awaken your heart and awaken your soul. Now, what determines, back to the presence of God, what determines whether you experience joy or terror in his presence? Because that is made clear here, that when Jesus returns, when God returns and steps foot into his world again in the person of Jesus Christ for the second day of the Lord, you will experience God's presence. Every person on the face of the earth will experience God's presence. 
and you'll either experience his presence with joy or with terror. What determines whether you experience his presence with joy or with terror? The answer is in verses 5 and verse 22. Right? Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is, that's the invitation of faith. It's the invitation to come to Jesus, to place your faith in Christ, in his light. And then verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? That's the call to repentance. It's the call to stop putting your hope, ultimate hope in other people. Stop making other people into gods that are unable to satisfy you. Faith and repentance, that, that's what determines whether you will experience the presence of God one day that could be tomorrow, it could be 10 years from now, it could be 1,000 years from now, which in that case would be when you die. But when you experience the presence of the Lord, you will experience joy or terror based on what you have done with Christ in this life. And if you've turned to him and understood that he has taken judgment for you, then when you are in the presence of God, there will be respect and awe, but there will be great joy because Jesus Christ will be standing by his side, the one who took your sins for you and took judgment for you. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a character named Gollum. And Gollum was originally a hobbit named Smeagol. But he became obsessed with possessing this golden ring of power. And everyone that possessed this ring, everyone that wore this ring would be morphed into something weirdly subhuman, which is what idolatry does. And so Gollum was a slave to power. He was a slave to the ring, and he became a man of terror and a man of violence, and he was deformed and he looked weird. And yet, even though this ring had deformed him, he continued to cherish it and call it my precious. And if that's not a picture of idolatry, the very thing that's deforming us and destroying us, we say, my precious, I need it. I need it. Of course, in the story, for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring has to be thrown into the fire of Mount Doom where it would be destroyed forever. Tolkien understood from the scriptures that the key to life is not only what you lay hold of, but also what you throw away. The key to life is not just what you lay hold of, but also what you throw away. What golden idol are you cherishing that you believe is essential to your happiness? And how have you seen it deform you intellectually, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, maybe even physically? 
What do you need to throw away to possess the one treasure that you cannot live without? And that's Jesus Christ who will never deform you, who will never dehumanize you, who will only make you beautiful like himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. That's our cry. That's our simple prayer. Help us. We continue to turn our eyes to things, to people in this world that, that we, we grab hold of and say, my precious, and believe it brings life, and it just simply steals our life from us. It deforms us. It makes us less than human. It turns us into an object. We lose feeling. We lose our hearts, and yet we continue to run back and say, my precious. Oh, Father, by your Holy Spirit, Would you give us the strength to turn away from that which is destroying us? And would you draw us to your son, Jesus, who promises to make us beautiful, who promises to make us more human as we're designed to be? Father, we long for the world to come. We long for the world of perfect unity and peace, but we know for that to happen that you, Father, have to step into your world a second time and bring judgment. And Father, we know that your son in his first coming took the judgment for our sin. Would you turn us in faith and repentance to your son, Jesus? Father, I pray for those here that maybe have never turned to Jesus that you would draw them today to your son, that they could anticipate the day when you return and anticipate that day with joy and being in your presence with joy and not terror. Father, as we continue to worship, would you capture our hearts and would you center our hearts on the one treasure that we cannot live without and that's Jesus Christ. In his name that we pray, amen.